Hello and welcome to Get Flushed, the portable sanitation podcast. My name's Pete. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with Daryl Veal and Carla Madden, who I will loosely describe as the wastewater team at Christchurch City Council. Now that's a terrible disservice because it doesn't go anywhere near describing their roles or explaining how much they do to make sure that the wastewater system in our city functions efficiently and effectively and meets the required environmental standards needed to maintain a clean and healthy community. I'm here today at Christchurch City Council where I'm joined by Daryl Veal who, Daryl, it's probably best if you introduce yourself. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, my name is Daryl Veal and I work at the Christchurch City Council. I've been here for uh, over eight years and in my role I'm um, responsible for uh, liquid industrial waste discharged into the city's wastewater network. And uh, this also includes um, the likes of portable toilet waste discharged at our wastewater treatment plant. Okay, we might just move the mic a little bit closer, Daryl. Oh, yeah. A little bit of fading in and out there. I oh, don't yeah. Know what caused that? Oh. So I, I to repeat that. No, that's fine. I've referred to you as the wastewater engineer. Is that an accurate description? Um, well, actually, more I'm trained in environmental science, but it is kind of an engineering role. Yeah, yeah I don't want to insult you. No, that's fine. <laughs> okay, and also in the room, and we may hear from her a little bit later on, is Carla Madden. And Carla, I don't know if you sing out loud, we might just pick you up and say hi. <laughs> So, Carla, I know you because you manage the, all of the, I'm going to say background stuff, but you manage the Bromley Wastewater Treatment Facility, I think. The, I look after the drivers and uh, <laughs> I, I build them. <laughs> we'll come back to Carla, but I've known Daryl and Carla for quite a few years. It's really good that you've come on today to talk about your world. The first thing I'm going to do is present you both with a Get Flushed mug. All right. You're really lucky to get one of these because the, the current batch of mugs was dispatched from Sydney and turned up at my house in the form of a 400-page photograph album of a Dutch family who live in Singapore. <laughs> so, so you're lucky that I managed to get those. Hi, thank you very much. That's great. <laughs> and, I, and I'm trusted that you don't have to declare them on the, cost, on the council hospitality no, register. No, no, no. The, the threshold's, I think, $50. Oh, we're well under that, okay. trust me. <laughs> okay, so um, I got in touch with Daryl a, a couple of three months ago to say, hey, I'm doing this podcast, and one of the things that people are interested in is what happens to wastewater and what's the difference between portable toilet waste and normal waste through the household sewer system and Daryl kindly agreed to come on and tell me about his world so I'm not going to talk very much Daryl if you need some pointers and guides give me a nod and I'll jump in but um, over to you. Yeah thanks essentially like I said before in my introduction I sort of looking after the industrial spectrum of, of wastewater discharge into our wastewater network that specifically excludes what I'm probably going to refer to as domestic in nature waste. And really what I mean by that is human effluent, okay, for, for want of a better word. So your ablution waste from your average domestic household, toilets, showers, kitchen waste and everything like that. So normally my role specifically excludes that. But in this instance, we have that particular type of waste, but it's, the, uh, it's associated with the portable toilet industry. So it becomes a trade waste. So really my involvement sort of extends to our wastewater treatment plant and ensuring that the portable toilet waste that we receive at our wastewater treatment plant is indeed just that, that it's not contaminated with any industrial type waste. Because as I'll sort of get to explain further later on in the podcast, we utilise a biological treatment system at our wastewater treatment plant. And so if I could put it this way, 
our wastewater network is very much like a circulatory system in a body where we have small veins, main arteries, and you have the heart at the centre. So uh, industrial waste is normally, you could say, discharged into the veins, and our treatment plant being the heart. Now, the difference with our trade waste reception facility where we receive all the portable toilet waste is that, using that analogy, it's effectively like discharging straight into the heart. So as we have biological treatment systems at the core of our wastewater treatment process, we have to be very careful that we're not accepting in industrial waste or toxic or hazardous waste directly into the heart of the treatment plant because it could potentially wreak havoc. Yeah, so if there's anything that shouldn't be in the system that you push in right into the centre, that's going to cause you trouble at the centre. Yes, that's exactly right. So one thing I did want to discuss today, which I really think that your listeners could find interesting, is some work I did a couple of years ago to find out exactly how we can determine that that's the case through standard monitoring. How do I know that this load of portable toilet waste that's coming in from from portable toilets and whatnot around events and centres around Christchurch, how can I tell that, that there aren't any traces of industrial effluent in there? At our reception facility, we sample for a heavy metal suite and pH, and we use them as sort of baseline indicators to say, is there anything else present in this wastewater that could potentially indicate that there's something non-domestic in nature? Generally speaking, portable toilet waste should be fairly neutral yep. and there shouldn't be any excess concentrations of, of heavy metals. So your lead. That's right. Lead, cadmium, copper, chromium, nickel, yep. um, arsenic, etc. I did some work a couple of years ago and fortunately I had a backlog of samples that we'd taken, about 4,000 samples yep. of portable toilet waste as a sort of a data bank to refer to, which was very useful so what I did is I essentially just looked at about a range of 4,000 samples and I took a quite a simple approach really, based it on the idea that if I have 3,900 samples of what Christchurch operators are claiming to be domestic origin wastes, so that's that portable toilet waste, yep. and I found that in this case 99.3% are either compliant or show no detectable limits of lead for example, then I would claim that our transgression limit, which is quite generous at 10 milligrams per litre, is a reliable indicator that there are no industrial or trade wastes in that portable toilet waste being brought to our treatment plant. So I found that out of all our heavy metal transgression limits, maybe I should just explain that we operate a transgression policy. So those heavy metals and pH that we sample for that I described, if an operator brings in a load that exceeds one of those limits, the city council issues a financial penalty. So is that tested in real time, Daryl? So as the driver's dumping, does yeah. the reading come up there and then? No, but the sample is taken automatically here. Yeah, okay. For cut. every load? We sample every load for compliance, such as the nature of that analogy I use about the heart of our treatment system. We have to be very careful about what we're receiving. What problems does it cause you if you have an abnormal load? Essentially, it could affect the biological treatment aspect. So we have biological reactors effectively digesting the wastewater that we receive at our treatment plant. And so there's bacteria, and they need specific conditions to survive. So contamination would put all of that out of kilter and potentially upset the whole plant? Potentially knock it over. Yeah. So that's the doomsday scenario. Yeah. Everyone panics, basically. 
as you can imagine, metals are known to affect bacterial mm-hmm. reproduction. So that's something that we, we definitely don't want. But, I mean, there's all sorts of waste that could be contained in. could be biocidal, for example. And we just use those heavy metals and pH as an indicator to say, okay, there could be a, a whole lot of stuff in there, but we use that as a clear baseline indicator that there's something else other than portable toilet waste. If an operator's dumping in an approved facility, say, in their yard, and they're depositing waste which has got contaminants in... Does that still cause a problem or is it diluted by the time it gets to the plant? It still causes a compliance problem. We still treat it the same. But in essence, yes, it would be heavily diluted by the time Mm. it reaches the plant. And that's going back to, to, you know, having that dilution in the network, not discharging straight into the heart of the treatment plant. It's the proximity that is the inherent risk here. So it might just be worth, for the benefit of the listeners who don't know Christchurch, the central treatment, wastewater treatment plant is over on the east side of the city. Yes, that's right. Most portable toilet operators in Christchurch dump at that treatment plant. There that's exactly are, right. Maybe one or two who've got a facility to dispose in their yard. Currently only one. That goes to sewer, but that's on the west side of Christchurch. Yeah. So it's, it's a very far, far away. Okay, so every other operator has to go to the treatment plant in Bromley and discharge. Yep. And, and I've been there and it's a fairly straightforward operation. Driver arrives, scans themselves in, mm-hmm. they enter their numbers into an electronic control panel, hook up the truck, the valve opens, they discharge, press finish, and then they leave the site. And it's a fairly clean and straightforward operation. Yep, that's right. And it's effectively only um, a couple of hundred metres from the actual treatment process. Oh, yeah, it's yep. right there. Okay. Yeah, so so essentially from, from the average home, wastewater is conveyed by a series of pipes and pump stations. And once it arrives at the treatment plant, the process begins with screening and grit removal. From here, the wastewater goes to uh, sedimentation tanks where the liquid faction is separated. And that's treated by uh, biological trickling filters, aeration and clarifiers. And from that point, it goes to our oxidation ponds, which um, are quite scenic and actually have a lot of bird habitat. If you didn't know what they were, you, you, wouldn't know what they you were. would probably want to build a million-dollar house there. They're, they're really, really nice. Yeah. And we, then via there, it's discharged via three-kilometre outfall into Pegasus Bay. So if we take a couple of steps back at the sedimentation process where we've separated the liquid faction, the solid faction is transported to our biological digesters. So we have two, uh, mesophilic and thermophilic, and that just basically means they operate at different temperature ranges for the specific bacteria. In those digesters, uh, we have a methane, and that actually provides the energy needs to run our treatment plant, and the surplus energy actually supplies this building, mm-hmm. a civic building in town, and also some other public buildings like the art gallery, etc. The final stage in the process there is that the sludge is ultimately dried in in ovens at the treatment plant and it's pelletised and then it's uh, used for land remediation. So at that point, are the pellets fairly neutral in terms of bacteria? Oh yes, absolutely, yeah, Yeah. they're inert. I mean, you you do have to be careful. We do monitor them and that's another reason why we're very particular about monitoring because those pelletised biosolids there's national environmental standards which dictate the sorts of metal concentrations that they can have. And if we exceed them, then the use for land remediation, well, basically we can't do can't it. can't use them. No, and it has to go to landfill at considerable expense. Yeah. So that's another reason why we, we're very particular and very careful about the sorts of contaminants that we're receiving. And to give listeners an idea, what sort of quantity or volume on a daily basis do you think is going through the plant? Through the plant? Season? Yeah, oh, I believe average flow, we're looking at 65 
Olympic swimming pools a day. Okay. I think it's a statistic yeah, I came up with good. once. <laughs> yeah, so I think I remember putting it in some sort of unit measurement that people could actually comprehend because it's quite a lot of volume. Yeah. So it's a lot of flow, yeah. Yeah, which is why your discharges on, on, in the other side of town are so heavily diluted. Mm. Yeah, but ultimately that, uh, that dilution may not affect the biological process still, but the contaminants therein, the likes of the metals, are still going to accumulate in those biosolids. Mm. So, which is why we sample for industrial waste all over Christchurch. Yeah. So, the water that's released from the outfall, that would be pH neutral and... Absolutely, yeah. So, we have a... The City Council has a, a resource you know, discharge consent with the Regional Council, which is you know, closely monitored, mm-hmm. and there's some pretty tight regulations. And that, again, is effectively should, should be safe enough to put back into the environment. Yeah. Covering the conclusions of what I found, and I did want to say that I'm quite happy to share this, that I did this work for the council, but also for uh, industry operators as well, because we have a transgression policy. It's basically a a limit on certain contaminants, which I've already explained. And these drivers are penalised. And we've had some interesting conversations over the years from operators who are adamant that they're only discharging what's in the toilet, yet it could have, say, high chromium or a bit of lead or nickel in there. And they're genuinely, I believe, a lot of the time, really unsure about how that got in there. So that is one thing I wanted to use today to sort of clarify some things that I've sort of found over the years about how little contamination it takes to spoil a whole batch a whole tanker load of portable toilet waste and why cleaning your truck out after, say, servicing waste interceptors, um, truck wash bays and the like and how vigilant and diligent you need to be as an operator to keep your tank clean because when I explain to these guys that some of the concentration limits mean that it could be as much as a teacup uh, or a coffee cup full of of contaminated we'll industrial be, we'll waste. Be enough to spoil the Potent- entire load of potentially maybe a thousand. You know, if it's concentrated enough at the at the source of what yeah. they've picked up previously, it could potentially uh, heavy metal and our pH limits are arbitrary. They're quite generous, and they actually reflect our wastewater bylaw guidelines. So our actual industrial waste bylaw guidelines. They're not picked out of thin air. So the, the rationale being that if we detect limits that are up around our industrial waste levels, again, it's a good indicator that it's not just portable toilet waste. Yeah. What I found was that all of our transgression limits over the, the 4,000 samples that I looked at, no one limit was exceeded really more than 1% to 2% of the time. So, so what I found is that I have a good deal of confidence in the range of, of heavy metal contamination that I would expect to see in portable toilet waste, and that... I believe that our transgression limits provide good oversight and ensuring that compliant loads. One thing I did want to raise is that, of course, there's always exceptions because we don't just receive portable toilet waste. We also take septic tank sludge. A lot of your listeners would be aware that you would expect certain concentrations to be high, particularly the likes of zinc, copper and lead, you know, resulting from people's diets, common plumbing fixtures, etc. And what I still found out from the entire sample pool was that copper was still only exceeded 1% of the time and zinc was exceeded 5% of the time and lead less than 1% of the time. But even when you look at those exceedances and you compare the concentrations of those individual non-compliant loads against the average samples, 
it's still a pretty clear indicator that there's something else in there. For example, the average copper concentration from septic tanks and portable toilet waste was about 5 milligrams per litre. Yet 50% of the non-compliant loads we received had concentrations well over 100. It's still a really clear indicator that it's not an anomaly. So where would it be coming from, Dale? Because the, the toilet operators in their defence would say once they've delivered the toilet, mm-hmm. they've got no control over what goes in it. It's up to the, the renter or the hirer and mm-hmm. the people on site if it's on a building site. So where in the environment would we typically find those metals? You could explain slightly higher concentrations due to people's diets and plumbing fixtures. So we ingest a lot of things yeah. and there's copper pipe and there are still lead pipes around. But what I found was that the concentrations are still not exceeding our transgression limits and that those that are aren't just over by a little bit, they're over by 10 to 20 times. So it tells me that when we do get exceedances, it is most likely industrial in origin. And when I do speak to operators who are often irate and confused and adamant that they're not trying to sneak in non-compliant loads, it really does often come down to a discussion of, well, are you guys cleaning out your trucks properly, thoroughly? Because it often doesn't take much. I've come across some pretty strange exceptions. We have a chemistry lab at a high school going into the septic tank. That always throws a bit of a curveball. We've had some drain cleaners, pretty aggressive pH yeah. in there, and some of them do use metals as well, and that can affect loads. It's not hard and fast, but I've found for about 99% of the loads that we receive, we've got a pretty good handle on what we should expect to receive. That was technical and dry, sorry. but No, no that's good. People will be genuinely interested because one of the common questions that, that have come back to me is, well, what happens to it? It's okay that you've got your toilet and then the guy comes in the truck and empties the toilet with a vacuum truck, but yeah. what happens to it then? And that was the purpose of getting in touch, that not many people, if they're not in the industry, not many people will have been to a wastewater facility no. and they won't understand. And I'll be honest, some operators won't understand the, the fineness of the tolerances I've found all sorts in toilets, honestly. They're, yeah. They're anything, <laughs> anything and everything in. And it's really interesting to hear from the sharp end that that actually does have an impact. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea is that the portable toilet waste industry should really just hum along without any sort of compliance issues yeah. or anything like that. we providing, you know, we have um, grit and screen removal to get rid of that debris. But as far as what I've covered today, it really does come down to operators just being diligent about what they're taking before mm-hmm. even the day before and making sure that the trucks they're using to clean out their portable toilets are free from any residual contamination you see in my head a, a portable toilet operator would only use the truck to empty portable toilets but that's not the real world and it's a very competitive market here there are 20 companies i think carla will know because she deals with them but i think there's 20 operators offering toilets around the city. Some of them don't clean their own, they use another agent to to clean the toilets. But a job's a job, and if people are are asked if they can suck a sump out or clean a gully or anything, then maybe they will do, and perhaps they don't realise that you need to wash the truck down. You know, I can totally understand it from the operator's point of view. They've got a 5,000 litre tanker truck. and They're going to use it. That's right, it might be 4,000 litres, and they might be on the... Um, on the way back to the treatment plant, there's a couple of, like you say, stormwater sumps that need cleaning out. Even that can throw up some non-compliances and things like that. So we're pretty um, straightforward and clear on the terms of the acceptable criterion that, yeah. that we take. For that purpose, really purely due to the proximity to the, the centre of the treatment plant, we we only accept those sorts of what we would deem septage wastes, yeah. you know, those sorts of domestic ablution-type wastes. 
Can I ask a question about formaldehyde? Because I, early on in the series, I talked to operators or manufacturers who produce toilet chemicals, mm -hmm. and they explained that there's definitely a move away from formaldehyde. But there are still formaldehyde-based products on the market, the blue chemicals that are still available and still used. I don't know if anyone in Christchurch is using them, but would you expect formaldehyde to cause a problem in the sewer? To be honest, we'd be relying on dilution effectively to render that relatively inert. But receiving that at the treatment plant, a biocidal agent like that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, That's the kind of thing that could keep us up at night for some reason or not. That a portable toilet load had a, a, an awful lot of something like that, an agent like that in it. And it was discharged at such close proximity. Um, our facilities open 24 hours. Yeah. So the flows that we're receiving into the treatment plant vary significantly. And if it could be one of those terrible timing moments in the middle of the night when there's not much flow, th th we don't have much dilution, they're close to the centre of the treatment plant and they discharge a tanker load full of chemical. It could be 95% chemical, 5% waste, and Agreed. it could be all the same to the operator. Yeah, You know, those are the things that, that really worry us. Yeah, We have to be very yeah. careful about. The, the challenge for the operators will be to persuade customers not to use the toilet as a depository for anything and everything. That's right. I don't have any answers to that. You're relying on people to show common sense and restraint. It's pretty difficult when <laughs> it's a toilet and it's yeah. a, it's a waste receptacle. Yeah. And as I remember, you know, from from the work, you know, that we did together a couple of years ago, the sorts of debris and stuff in there can just wreak havoc on your mm. equipment. Rubber gloves and things like that. It's, it's all these operators. Oh, and I've seen it go up the hose and I imagine that causes lots of problems if it's not filtered out or screened out. No, that's exactly right, yeah. And yeah. we find that whilst improving the facilities that we have to receive this sort of waste, we move away from the likes of a, a simple dump or open catch pit and we have something much more hygienic, much more, more tidy. I think we use um, like, like camlock systems now. Yeah. But debris does complicate things and you get more blockages because of it. When I spoke to um, Nick Trainer from Georgia Pacific who produces toilet roll, he told me about the dissolvability factor of paper mm -hmm. and explained the challenges presented by wet wipes. Oh, yeah. Because they don't dissolve. They, no. they stay intact. No. I mean, there's a basically a full-on war against that. No exception. And even to make it clear, the ones marketed as flushable are not. No. Don't be fooled. And I've seen it in a in a system. They snag on on sharp corners, and they build up a. a, a I suppose the term is fatberg, but they cause blockages, yep. which causes dramas. And certainly in vacuum pumping systems, they're just painful. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, even after the earthquake, you know, we had massive issues with the wastewater reticulation in Christchurch. Mm. You know, we re we relied solely on gravity systems. Yeah, we had. Uh, areas of the city slump can by one or two metres. Yeah. So, you know, the gravity network was effectively made redundant and that's where we've used the likes of these vacuum and pressure sewer systems, yeah. which, like I said before, you know, you improve the technology, but you also, as a consequence, increase the vulnerability a little bit. We generally, I don't think we have too much of a problem with portable toilet waste because the operators are supplying the paper in the in the cubicles. So thankfully, it's not an issue. And uh, to be honest, the, the the biggest issues I've found are, are when they've run out of paper and they've used their socks or their underpants, <laughs> and that blocks the hose. <laughs> so the, the driver deals with that, and hopefully he's got his eye or her eye oh, looking into the tank to I make sure only, nothing like that goes up. I can but. only imagine <laughs> the sorts of horrors that these operators see from a day to day basis.
I wanted to say that in all of my dealings with you, as a, I'll call you the wastewater treatment team, you've always been really helpful and friendly and very professional and have solved problems with me rather than caused you know, enforcement dramas or made me feel vulnerable and threatened as an operator. And, no, I, and I want good. to make that point because some people will sometimes look at city councils and think, oh, it's admin bureaucracy painful but you haven't you've always been really honest and open and straightforward and helped find solutions to potential problems so i'd say thank you for that oh that's really good to hear you know because we work with industry and in, mm. in our team wastewater operators and the truth be told the sorts of people that i, I talk to are immediately down to earth practical yeah. types so you've really got to be on the same page as these guys and they're the ones that have got hands in it and are doing it and having to deal with it and if you start putting your paper limits and ideals on them and you're not it's detached from from reality from what they're actually dealing with you're not going to get anywhere that's a bonus for anyone in the industry here that they know there's a team that they can actually talk to and get straightforward advice from and not be fearful that they've committed an offence or transgressed and are going to get walloped with a huge fine even before they've let you know what's going on. Do you think there's much renegade dumping goes on, that people not coming to Bromley and dumping anywhere else? Or From my eight-plus years in, in this role, you understand that you're never going to get everything 100% compliant. Yeah. And the more work you do, you're just going to decrease the level of non-compliance. So you might find um, an operator or a bunch of operators who are probably operating at about 50% compliant yeah. and that you, you realise that they're never going to be 100% but you put the work in and you put the oversight in and you communicate with them and you explain a few things and you might get them up to about 80-85%. Yeah. It's a funny thing to say as a regulator but again you've got to be practical and that you can't control what everyone does all of the time. And a, a follow-on question is that you might not want to answer this, but without naming names, has anyone ever been struck off? Out of the treatment plant? Yeah, or a toilet operator been told that actually we don't want you in business. We've certainly issued a fair few warnings in our time, and that's part and parcel of what we do. We absolutely have to follow up these yeah. transgressions and non-compliances. And do you think sometimes it's just a, a lack of knowledge or a, a deliberate attempt to subvert the system sometimes when i look at the sample report and i see the likes of cadmium in there and i'm thinking how on earth exactly. would cadmium pass through someone's digestive tract and yep. end up either in a septic tank or a portable toilet waste and i'm thinking that's quite a rare and uncommon and quite a toxic heavy metal Searching for an innocent explanation of that's quite hard and i'm following up with that operator saying please explain mm. and they find it even more difficult than I do. So it's just a good discussion to have with them to say, are you being vigilant? Are you thinking about what you're picking up? And generally, I find the response from operators in Christchurch really good. You know, they're communicating with me straight away and they following up and investigating. If I turned up to suck a toilet and it was obvious there was something in there that wasn't meant to be there, there was a foam or a scum or a film on the top, is there a mechanism for a driver to not clean that toilet and give you a call and say, hey, I don't want to contaminate the load? I would take my head off to that operator and thank them for being, you know, proactive about it. I've certainly been to toilets that have got funny-looking appearances. Yeah, well, I would. that's what we essentially utilise our what we call... WDCs, Waste Disposal Companies. Yeah. So that's a series of about five companies in Christchurch that have a special licence, so they're unlike other industry, and they are specifically permitted to take 
waste, industrial waste, any waste into their yard from from outside, i.e. it's not generated on site, treat it and discharge it into our wastewater network. So that's what we would recommend for that. Absolutely. One of the common ones that I've seen is either the plaster or the painter on residential constructions has poured a bucket of paint wash oh, right. into the toilet. I've seen that at yep. least once. I can, I can um, see that happening. And I'm guessing that is because you're not supposed to wash your paintbrushes into the, your kitchen sink at home either. You're not supposed to wash them into any stormwater drain. That's a good point to talk about the difference between stormwater and sewer because a lot of people don't understand there are two networks. Yes. That's generally one of the most common times that we have pollution incident is on the likes of these building sites where you've got guys laying driveways, there's concrete slurry, there's painters, plasterers, there's all sorts. An acid wash if they're doing exposed aggregate. Yeah, that's right. And and they've got to get rid of that somewhere. And so it's a pretty delicate thing. And it's very difficult as a regulator. You don't want to be in a position where you're having to consent or oversight to these guys i mean it's one of those things where it's education really comes down to education so the city council and um, the regional council do a lot of work in educating the public about where their drains go broadly sewer drains and stormwater drains and being able to distinguish between the two so the sewer is usually the sealed system that will your toilet and your kitchen sink connects to that's right so if, if it comes to it I'm always encouraging the guy with that one bucket of paint wash water. We're not going to consent him for it. He's not going to call up a company to come take it away. So it's to find the super tub. I'm not sure your listeners would know what a a super tub is, what we call a laundry tub. Without a doubt, that's going to be connected into your wastewater network. And failing that, they might be a little apprehensive, but particularly because if they're a contractor and it's not their site, is to use the toilet. That's a about a hundred percent guarantee that you're going to end whatever you're discharging is going to end up in the sewer network. And is that acceptable? And paint wash into the sewer? It's one of those that puts me in a bit of an awkward spot. So for anyone listening at home, we would rather you didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. The point is, is that but it uh, happens. It does. Yeah. And like I say, we're not going to consent it. We're not going to follow it up or relate it. We're going to say, if you're a contractor and, and you're around a, a portable toilet, don't tip anything down there. Find a toilet connected into the wastewater network, so in the house that you're working on. An outside drain that's connected to the, the basin or well, the sink or that's, something. That's where we could potentially run into problems because right. we're going to have to get into specifics about what a gully trap looks like compared to a stormwater downpipe, and some guys can get a little bit confused, particularly if there's no downpipes going into the receptacle. It yeah. might look like a gully trap. So to avoid that sort of risk, we, we really discourage people from tipping anything down, any drain they find outside. Yeah. So the stormwater system, that's all the rainwater from the road, from the roof, that's that, right. that runoff from car parks. Impervious surfaces. Yeah. Yep. So from your house, you're looking from your driveway and from any roof surface and from anywhere else, it's the road, the curb and channel. And, and is that treated, Daryl, or does that just go straight into the ponds? That is untreated. So yeah. we definitely don't want anything down there Absolutely at all. nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's clean rainwater only, under no exception. And that includes biodegradable detergents. They are not to be discharged into the stormwater system. I have this discussion a lot, and I even get some incredulous looks from guys saying it's basically orange juice, you know, because they think there's some citric acid in there. (laughs) And I say it doesn't matter. So if I'm washing my car at home and I'm using Simple Green or something like that, I need to do that on the lawn and not on the Absolutely. On the lawn. Yeah. There's no no issues with that whatsoever. If you're doing that on a driveway or an impervious surface, it's going to run off. It's going to go 
into the Kerbin Channel or the Stormwater Network, and it's going to be discharged into the river, the estuary, the local creek without treatment. And then the sewer is generally a sealed system that we typically can't see from outside that's right. because it's connected from the toilet or the um, kitchen sink directly that, into the main. That's right. That's cleared that up. A lot of people won't know. No, you're absolutely um, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Your access points to the sewer net from, from, from your house are your kitchen sink, your bathroom sink, your laundry sink and your toilet and the shower and yeah. the bath. That's cool. That's really helpful. Anything else that we need to throw in there? Um, I think I've been pretty de- detail-heavy. Sorry. That, no, that's... that really just encompasses what my, my role is regarding portable toilet waste yeah. in there. Making sure that quality is acceptable. We're not accepting anything we can't. And um, hopefully I've sort of explained what could potentially happen if yeah. we don't. But all the results, the discussion that I've talked about today, I'll give that to you to share with your sure, listeners. I can upload that. That covers what our transgression limits are, yeah. what we're sampling for, it explains why, and it also explains the results of the, the 4,000 samples that we, we looked at. Yeah. And they can get a picture of pretty much everything that I've sort of discussed today. Okay, so the, when you test those samples, have you got a white coat and safety specs? Do you do it upstairs, or is it...? Oh, that's done by our in-house laboratory team. Yeah. But really, that's a function of the likes of our, our reception facility. So that's Carl as well. That's, yeah, that's sort of where I handed over. Excellent. Okay. Well, that's really good. Thank you, Daryl. I do appreciate you taking time out to come and talk on the podcast. No, that's fine. It's one of those subjects that everybody's really fascinated with, and I'm sure the listeners will enjoy hearing what happens to the waste once it's received at the facility and discharged out to sea eventually. No, that's fine. I'm just glad to hear that you're going to edit. Goodness <laughs> me, I never want to do a live one. So, well, people do, and I, I honestly don't know how they do, because when I write my script, I sometimes say sentences and just end up tripping over my teeth or my Right. And I'll get complaints at home because I'm in the the studio and the kids will say, honestly, you've said that like 50 times. Just change the words. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, no, it's good. I'm I'm glad. I'm glad. Also, just to add, my contact details are on the report as well. So, you know, the benefit of email, anyone can get in touch these days. I'm happy to field questions. I won't get to read your email address out because you get loads of spam emails from people trying to sell you stuff. But it's on the the report, which I'll give to you. Okay. And you can disseminate that. Excellent. Well done. If anyone requests it. Cool. Thank you, Daryl. We've had a seventh inning stretched and swapped seats and changed microphone positions, and I'm now joined by Carla Madden. So, Carla, hi. Hello. For the benefit of the listeners, Carla, could you tell us what you do? My official title is Engineering Officer Business in the Water Services team at the Christchurch City Council, and most of my job is related to billing of trade waste customers. So you know every operator in the city... A little bit. And you know all of their truck registration numbers and all of their driver names. (laughs) (laughs) There are some very interesting registration numbers on on those trucks. (laughs) We've got about 15 companies who do portaloo waste of 36 active companies, so nearly half. that's 15 companies with their own trucks. Yeah, and some of them do multiple different types of loads, but yeah, they also do portaloo waste. And then I think on top of that, I know that there's at least four companies who've got toilets, but they subcontract the cleaning. So that would take us up to my 20 different brands. As I've ridden around subdivisions, I've logged down all the names and I think I'm up to 19 operators plus some privately owned toilets that builders have made the decision that instead of renting toilets, they've bought their own and they're dropping them off at jobs. Okay. It's a busy market because, you know, what are we, 360, 380,000 residents? And that's a lot of operators for a a small city. Mm. 
You make the Bromley part of the wastewater operation keep running, essentially. I try. I do get <laughs> notifications very quickly when things are not going well there. Yeah. And uh, but I'm not on site, yeah. so uh, that requires me to be calling people and tracking down who's closest to be able to fix things okay, when they so aren't in, working. In, in process terms, you issue the passes and the codes and allow yeah. people access. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you issue the billing as well once they've discharged in that facility. Yeah. Yeah, I've made that really simple. I know you do a lot more than that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I get the results from the samples that have been taken and tested. Yeah. And um, the transgressions that we bill for, it's... It's called a transgression fee, but it's actually only the cost of having done the testing because um, as a council, we're not allowed to use it as a revenue-gathering mechanism. So it's not like the speed cameras where we're going to ping as many drivers as possible. No, it's cost recovery. (laughs) Okay, and then um, just to explain that, so the the samples are taken at Bromley or if you dump in an approved facility elsewhere at the yard. Yeah. Tested in the lab. Mm-hmm. The results come through as a numerical report. Yeah. And then if it's above or below, um, if it's below, do you send a congratulations and say, well done? No. 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 <laughs> shaking his head. <laughs> if it's over, then you obviously you want to know why that's happened. And then there's the cost recovery because potentially it's caused dramas at the treatment work. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's only just a little bit over, then uh, it's just the invoicing of the transgression. If it's a lot over, then it's an email with a please explain or a phone call if it's quite, quite over. Quite, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then the billing's done monthly, I think, is it, or quarterly? Uh, monthly. A monthly invoice for the um, tankered waste volumes that are discharged, and I invoice as I get the transgression information, so that's every couple of weeks. Yeah. And then just for the benefit of, of listeners, the licences and permissions and all of that to dump there, it, it, that's all managed by the council but not necessarily by you, I think. Uh, I get the information for um, consenting them to be able to use the facility, um, but other licences that they need, like offensive trade licence and hazardous space... Managed by another council uh, yeah. team, yeah. yeah. So, so the process is really fairly straightforward. I know mm-hmm. talking with um, ABC when they applied, they filled the form and paid the fee, somebody came out and checked their facility, and once we were all approved and we'd shown the right insurances, documentation and everything else we were good to go and then you arranged the swipe card I think yeah yeah that's right cool so thank you for that that's okay (laughs) right what do you want to tell us about your role then Carla or your world Uh, my world (laughs) um well trade waste tankered waste wise uh we've got probably about close to 40 active companies who are consented and more than 50 trucks that use the facility and, so that, um, that's portable toilet and septic tank operators. Yes, and also landfill leachate. Okay. Another one that happens from time to time, not yeah. all the time. We probably get between 10 and 30 trucks going in each day. Usually it's sort of 15 to 20. There's two stations, so there's not often queues, but at the moment we're down to one station. So Breakage. Technical difficulties. 
You did quite a bit of, should we call it, remodelling at that facility a few years ago, post-earthquake, I think. Yeah, that's right. And am I right in thinking it's fairly high-tech for the industry? I believe it is. It's certainly a big step up from what we used to have before, which was much more manual. You had to phone ahead before you arrived. Somebody would meet you at the facility and uh, unlock it, reset the meter, and then the driver would have to record what the meter reading was at the end and manually take a sample of the load and then wander over to the lab with the sample and then they would uh, fill in a a bit of paperwork uh, and they'd get their copy and we'd have a carbon copy. Now it's all automated. I've been, it's really easy to use. You, you drive up, you present your card, the gate opens, you hook up, present your card onto the keypad, press go and choose whatever you're dumping, whether it's portable toilet waste or septic tank discharge or... There's quite a few on that list, I think. There's about four or five different things, but most people are only picking yeah, one of three things. And then as soon as they've finished their discharge, my little program on my computer shows me. In that, real time? Yeah, in real time. So, and you're, what, maybe 10 k's away, I think? So that's quite, <laughs> Something like that, yeah, yeah. That's quite cool then, that you can see who's doing what, where and when. Yeah. Tell me you don't get woken in the middle of the night by an alarm that someone's no, got. No, no, no. <laughs> so from a user's perspective, you asked for feedback when you designed that plant and you, you coordinated all the feedback from drivers and operators to see if it was easy to use? Yeah, there, there wasn't much negative feedback. It was mostly positive. There's been a few changes as a result of the feedback. The drivers felt that the drain was too far away, so when they're finished, they're supposed to wash down afterwards. The hoses are quite heavy there. It's hard to get a nice balance between what's user-friendly and what will last. And I think they've just recently done quite a large piece of work out there to change the levels of the ground so that things flow in a better direction. I haven't been out there to see it since it's been completed, though. I've always found it fairly easy to use. Fantastic water pressure off the big water main. It's a a proper firefighting place. That's really good. It's a bit scary, actually. The only drama I've had is if you've not used it for a while and you're out of practice is just coordinating the opening and closing of the valve and the pump on your truck so that you don't spill any. And I know if, you've, if you're good, you can discharge without very much, if any, spillage. But if you take your eye off, then perhaps you might just get a little bit of leakage at the end. Yeah, we had some problems early on as well with people using the pump and the facility not really being made to build built to cope with that kind of pressure so um they've put some valve release things in since it was first because that was a big change i think um the discharge point is above ground so you need to be able to blow from a tank can you empty just by gravity will it take it yes you can empty by gravity you're supposed to but most of the trucks i think do use a little bit of extra yeah 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 no, I think they do. I, certainly every time I've been with, that's been the norm. That's, that's a bit worrying to hear. Do, do we not do that then? You just open your valve and let it flow out? You're just supposed to open your valve and let okay. it flow, yeah. I bet a lot of people are blowing out under pressure. They might be. I think there's a possibility if they do that, that the meter reader that's measuring the volume might read Over-read. it higher than it should. I'm pretty sure it was hammered home when we first opened because yeah. we were told absolutely no pumping at that, yeah, when we first opened, but we We've worked out over time that it's a possibility and you can do it, Yeah, but we don't encourage it. It's the last bit in the tank that's always difficult to get out because the water flows really quickly, but the sludge at the bottom is always the challenge. 
Yeah, the only other notes I've written down are about health and safety requirements. Oh, let's talk about health and safety then, Carla, because I know there are some big signs at Bromley and I've seen guys <laughs> jump out of the truck in their shorts and vests. Yeah, we've had a few incidents <laughs> and so as a result of a, a big review, anybody who accesses the trade waste reception facility is supposed to have steel cap boots. They're supposed to have full coverage of clothing, including gloves and so safe. Long, long arms, long, long sleeves, arms, yeah, um, long, long legs. Yep, yep. And glasses, safety glasses. Yeah. I think a lot of portable toilet operators get real blasé about PPE because they're doing it all the time and they're jumping in and out of the truck. And you see operators without gloves and without glasses. And certainly a lot of them will just wear their shorts and vests. Right. And I understand that because it's quite an active job and you're wrestling and if it's a hot day, you're in a hot cabin. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's people's health and we should be looking after ourselves and not exposing ourselves to mm. risk. Yeah, yeah. Certainly once um, COVID-19 uh, became a, an issue, there were some concerns with the Portaloo yeah. companies about um, putting themselves at risk yeah. at the treatment there, plant. There's been some work that it can be spread by faecal spray. I don't know if that works 100% reliable, but there have certainly been articles published in the trade press that COVID can be spread that way. And it's been interesting watching the response of the chemical manufacturers um, because the process of having your chemical tested and officially recognised as a COVID killer is quite an elaborate one. So not many companies have done that that I'm aware of. The same with the detergents. There are some really strong products out there, but would we necessarily want people use I'm looking at Daryl who's still with us that some of the really strong bleaches and stuff might not be the best thing for your system no he's shaking his head no the sanitation of the facilities is one thing but the the treatment of the water inside the portal is kind of in my opinion rather unnecessary it can be left as and treated as, as a hazardous substance and yeah. allow uh, us at the treatment plant to do the work uh, if you're trying to use biocidal agents or chemical agents to inoculate anything that's in the wastewater, it's really potentially just going to affect our treatment process and that operator should just be looking at cleaning the cabin, those the receptacles that's actually touched and used by the person. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So if, if you're out there listening in, clean your cabins, but don't try and clean your waste in the tank. Let, let the system do its work. So PPE, really important, Carla, because we don't want to be wearing it or eating it. No, it's, um, it's happened a couple of times and it does not look pleasant. No, I could tell you some horror stories, trust me. I won't do, but... Oh, question Almost from Dalek, have you had jandals? Almost yeah. certainly, yeah. Open-toe thongs or sandals yeah, for flip-flops. flip-flops for anybody else in the rest of the world, yeah. You see it all in portable toilets, so I wouldn't be surprised. I think that's it for me. I don't have any funny stories for you, sorry. No, that's right. So Carla's been modest, but she's actually a really essential part of the system. And without you running all of that behind the scenes, it would fall over pretty quickly, I think. And again, I'll say, as I said with Daryl, that whenever I phoned you for help or information, you've been really good at coming back with an answer straight away. So Thank you. Operators, I think, would appreciate that. So. I think there might be some panic happening at the moment. I've missed a call from oh, somebody you? at the treatment okay. plant. Thank you, Carla, for taking part. It's good to hear from you both. I, you know, genuinely, I think the listeners will enjoy that. So from me, thank you. Thank you. So that was Daryl and Carla with a behind-the-scenes look at how the wastewater system is managed here in Christchurch. As promised, I'll post Daryl's report on the Get Flush page on Patreon, where you'll be able to download it for free and find his contact details if you'd like to know more about his work. 
Patreon is also the place to go if you'd like to get early access to every episode and find bonus material that's not available anywhere else. Visit patreon.com forward slash get flushed. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Please remember to tell at least one family member, friend, colleague or stranger about the show. And if you have a spare moment, please leave a review on your favourite podcast platform. And if you'd like to win a Get Flushed cap, leave a comment and share our Facebook page. We'll keep that little competition running for a while longer yet. Once again, thank you for your time. I've been Pete and you've been listening to Get Flushed, 